You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from Discipleship Director, Johnny Bell. This morning, I get the pleasure of preaching. Again, my name is Johnny. And today, I'm going to tell you some things you already know. Like a dentist who every six months tells you that you need to floss, and every six months you go, bro, I know, I know, but I'm not going to. (laughs) That's me today. Today I'm going to tell you some things I think you already know. But for the first time, I hope that you find them to be true. And I hope that somewhere along this journey, in the next 30 minutes, it stirs your soul And you find something you know you've always needed, but haven't always had. The very beginning of the Bible, we get a story of a creator, a creator God. He starts making things. He makes heaven and earth and moons and stars and oceans and mountains. And then he fills them with things like plants and fish and beasts and lizards and birds. And everything he makes, he makes an assessment of. There's this repeating phrase in this creation narrative, and God says, it says, he saw that it was good. Every artist in the room can only dream of such a prolific career of every single thing you make. You go, another masterpiece, killing it over here. Not my experience. This process of creation culminates to a final moment when the creator God makes mankind. Then he says something different. After God makes mankind, he takes a step back and and it says this. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Apparently something happened when God makes people and he's able to look at it all and suddenly it all clicks and it's all working and everything is happy and in unison And what was once good is now exceedingly so. We all know and maybe understand to some level, if you know this story, in a minute, that story takes a hard left turn. Sin is going to enter into the world. And all this good stuff living in harmony is going to shatter like a teacup dropped from a very great height. But before that, before it all breaks, something is revealed. In between everything being exceedingly good and everything being exceedingly broken, we get a little moment in Genesis chapter 2 where God declares that something isn't good in the midst of an unbroken world. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It is not good to be alone. God makes an assessment and a statement about the human experience that we are not designed to do life alone. Now, of course, moments of being alone are a beautiful breath of fresh air in a busy world. All the introverts sigh of relief. But to do life alone is not the way human beings were created. Not just because broken people need are broken and need broken people need broken people, yada, yada. No, no, no. In the Bible, this is before the fall, before sin, and before brokenness. 
The human being in Genesis 2 is not broken, not messed up, not processing trauma. He's perfectly healthy and righteous, and yet still, he cannot thrive alone. Even your most perfect, enlightened, strongest, healthiest, transformed self cannot survive alone. Isolation, as we all know, is a killer. What was written down in the Bible 2,500 years ago has been confirmed in every single way and in every anthropological study, in every society, every culture, and every demographic since. We all know the feeling of loneliness and isolation. No one gets through this life without at least a season of loneliness. And for many of us, it is much more than a season. It is the gut-wrenching loudness of how quiet it is when you're doing life alone. It is crying and having no one to comfort you. It is laughing and having no one to turn to to see them smiling back. It is knowing that you absolutely cannot afford to have an emergency because you have no one to call. It is the soul-sucking, doom-scrolling through Instagram late at night in a dark room with your face illuminated in the blue light as you watch everybody else have fun but you. It's dreading your birthday and holidays because even if you threw a party, who would you invite? It's having multiple chairs at your dining room table, but only one ever is sat in. It's going to school and keeping your AirPods in all day because no one's going to talk to you. It's eating lunch out of a brown paper bag at your desk at work. It's going home to an apartment and all the lights are still turned out and there's no signs of life inside. It's turning the TV on just to hear some familiar voices. And if you weren't feeling sad before you came to church, <laughs> now you are. But aside from our own anecdotal experience, an experience that is universally felt at some point in your life, we know this on a cultural and scientific level. A long-term study in New Zealand that tracked over 1,000 children from birth to being 26 years old found that those who were socially isolated or who occupied peripheral social roles in childhood were significantly more physically unhealthy in their adulthood, leading to a lower expected lifespan. The study concluded that social isolation has persistent and cumulative detrimental effects on adult health. And when trying to create a healthy lifestyle, the psychological effects of isolation and treatment plans for isolation must be factored in. Other studies found that social isolation limits brain development, contributes significantly to stress and anxiety, and that loneliness is one of the major factors in diminished mental health. Going back to the 19th century, there was a phenomenon where most institutionalized infants in the United States were dying of a thing called marasmus, also known as wasting away. In a now famous study, John Bowlby researched this phenomena 
and he found that the surveyed institutions, mostly hospitals and orphanages, reported that, reported that a majority of infants under the age of two had died due to failure to thrive related to a lack of physical touch and affection. It was deemed that for unknown medical reasons, it was essential for human beings to experience the comfort and platonic physical affection and closeness of other human beings. Hear this. As essential as it is to eat and drink and sleep, it is essential to experience proximity to other human beings. And in fact, we know this very plainly because the most severe punishment we inflict upon people in society for our worst offenders is solitary confinement. When racking our brains for what is the worst punishment we can possibly give to another human being, we came up with isolation. Craig Haney, in his annual review of criminology in 2017, writes, interestingly, that originally this form of discipline was mistakenly seen as beneficial for the inmate and was the modal way of housing inmates in correctional facilities and prisons for some time. Supposedly, the alone time would provide a chance for personal reflection and penance, a form of mandated silent retreat, which is what silent retreats feel like to me now. In the US in the 1800s, the practice was abolished after the theory of it being beneficial was decidedly disproven. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Miller described it as being much too severe. Solitary confinement only returned to our prison system in the late 20th century, with the aim, as Haney writes, of being a practice designed to make people suffer. The negative effects of solitary confinement from now decades-long studies have found that isolated individuals commonly experience decreased appetite, trembling hands, sweating palms, heart palpitations, and a sense of impending emotional breakdown. Sleep disturbances, including nightmares and sleeplessness, heightened levels of anxiety and panic, irritability, aggression and rage, paranoia, ruminations, violent fantasies, cognitive dysfunction, hypersensitivity to stimuli and hallucinations, loss of emotional control, mood swings, lethargy, flattened effect and depression, increased suicidality and instances of self-harm, and finally, paradoxical tendencies to further social withdrawal. This is what happens to people who are alone. And I don't bring this up to talk about solitary confinement and prison reform. That is another conversation. I'm bringing this up because it is the most extreme version of social, social isolation, and yet the negative effects sound alarmingly similar to those experienced by lonely and isolated individuals in everyday society, especially in hard cities like LA, and especially on the tail end of a global pandemic marked by isolation and quarantine as standard practice. I don't have enough fingers to count the number of people I know who could list those symptoms of solitary confinement as part of their regular human experience. 
We also know isolation to be harmful because it's the punishment we see fit to enact on loved ones who hurt us or misbehave. From the classic threat of a parent to a teenager that they will kick them out of the house, that is to kick them out of community and into isolation, or bullying clicks and exclusion that are the go-to punishment strategy for every schoolyard and workplace. It is common practice in most tribal communities to exclude or exile a person who has broken tribal law. We know that if you want to really hurt someone, you cut them out of the social group. They can't come to the wedding, the family reunion, or Christmas dinner. Even things like giving someone the cold shoulder or silent treatment are small forms of social exclusion as a means of punishment. We know it is intolerable to be excluded, isolated, or lonely. It is written into our DNA that isolation is one of, if not the greatest threat to your health and certainly your ability to thrive. So naturally, we all really lean into the concept of community, right? Sadly, no. Especially here in the West, and especially here in North America. In Tocqueville's seminal text, Democracy in America, that he wrote after his extensive travels through the US in the 1800s, he concluded that extremist individualism is the defining American trait. Gert Hofstede, a social psychologist, developed a model for assessing how much any culture values individualism, and after decades of study, found that the USA was without doubt the most individualistic culture on earth and is in fact an outlier on that chart. Individualism, of course, comes with a lot of benefits, some of which I know I personally love. Personal privacy, freedom to choose my career, the ability to try new things and improve and innovate, free press, being great examples. But it also means we as a society are pointed towards a tendency to isolate, and the data even suggests that the fabric of our society makes it beneficial to operate as, as an individual who is self-motivated rather than a community who is other-oriented. If you want to learn more about this, there is a fabulous Freakonomics episode on it. An individualistic society is prone to innovation and progress, but the dark underbelly is a culture of comparison, competition, and success motivated by being better than others. In America, we like to go fast. And as the old idiom goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. Way back in the year 2000, Robert Putnam wrote the book Bowling Alone, the Collapse and Revival of American Community. The chapters on the revival of American community are theoretical. He posits that in modern American life, we have become disconnected from family, friends, neighborhoods, and even our democratic structures, leading to the impoverishing of our lives and communities. One of his hooks, and where the title of his book comes from, is that in the year 2000, more people were bowling yes, like literally going bowling, than ever before. But bowling leagues, that is communities gathering together with a consistent rhythm to do something they love, were in extreme decline. 
He found that along with bowling leagues, any and all forms of committed community were on the decline in favor of staying home, isolating, and running individual disconnected lives. 22 years later, the trend has not slowed down. A 2021 study from Harvard found that 36% of adults reported serious loneliness. That is, feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time or all the time. Of that percentage, we found that 61% of young adults said they were seriously lonely. And 51% of young mothers reported serious loneliness. This hurts to say out loud because even though Jesus instructed us to take care of orphans and widows, it seems we actually create social orphans and widows with a culture that disproportionately negatively impacts young people and moms. And although the pandemic clearly poured gasoline on these issues, all of the data suggests that this was a problem that was made worse by the pandemic but was not created by it. Here's what I love about Jesus, though. He gave us the church, and he has a solution for all of this. There is not a version of following Jesus that exists outside of being connected to community. He has written it into our DNA and into the DNA of his kingdom, and it flows from his nature as a triune God. Somewhere, though, in the last hundred years, rampant extreme individualism coupled with the concept, which I like this concept, but the concept of a personal relationship with Jesus has led to some of us believing we can go it alone in this life when we are actually called to deep transformation, encouragement, and love through community, not apart from it. If you read the Bible, the entire Old Testament is the story of a group of people the followers of God, and any time the narrative zooms in to focus on an individual, it is always within the context of who they are in relation to the group, how their health and the health of the group are bound together. Jesus himself calls his disciples not as individual apprentices, but continually adds members to their group who travel, eat, work, and do life together. Jesus is just as likely to be seen eating with people as he is preaching to people. When Jesus sends his disciples out in Luke 10, he sends them out in pairs, not individuals. In Matthew 12, Jesus declares that his disciples, his little group of friends, are closer to him than his mother and brothers, and that this will be a defining trait of everyone that follows him. Jesus continually heals lepers, the outcasts of society, and the most isolated people, and then makes sure they are restored into community before he considers the healing complete. In Jesus' famous high priestly prayer in John 17, the number one desire of Jesus' heart above all else is that his followers would be united in a loving community. Then, of course, famously, the first descriptions of the followers of Jesus, the church itself after he ascended to heaven, was that all who believed were together and had all things in common and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. I could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. The kingdom of God is a family, a community, 
Brothers and sisters, friends, nobody walks alone. I heard it said like this once and I love the analogy. Your life is like a rock, rough and sharp with jagged edges and abrasive textures. As human beings, we are harsh and unrefined, like a rock on dry land, isolated, static, unchanging, rough, and not thriving. The community of the kingdom of God is like a river. And when your rock is placed into the river, your rock collides with other rocks. It tumbles around and experiences the encouragement and discipline and beauty and grace and forgiveness that is only found in community. And as the rocks crash together in the river, those rough edges are smoothed down refined, pruned, and chipped away. And after the rock spends its life flowing in the river where it is supposed to be, it thrives and becomes smooth and transformed and all that it could be. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament could not have envisioned a version of being part of the way that didn't involve real and deep community. Your life was made to thrive in community. Everything I've said so far, I think you already knew. I think we all knew. This is, that was the, you need a floss. And you're like, I know. I know that being lonely sucks. We get it. And yet, we resist. We resist community for a lot of reasons, and some of them very, very valid. I racked my brain, I studied, and I found four big reasons why we resist community in modern life. There's probably a lot more, but let's start with four. Number one reason I think we resist community is that some of us have experienced deep pain and trauma at the hands of community. Isolation feels a whole lot safer than being vulnerable and risking getting hurt again. And some of those hurts are really big and they go really deep. In answer to that, my friends, I offer you Jesus. If you as a man or woman have experienced trauma at the hands of other men and women and you find them to no longer be safe enough to trust with your precious life, I would be a fool to push you back into that place but that's why I love Jesus. Because he came to earth as a man that is safe. He came as a person who is kind. He came as a friend who's trustworthy. And if people are hard for you to trust, then no pressure. Start with the person of Jesus and let him slowly redeem the concept of a safe person and healthy community for you. And when you are good and ready, he will lead you to cast your rock back into the river. Number two reason why we resist community is that most of us have bought into the idea that community has to be effortless and instantly life-changing and defined by how much easy chemistry we have with the other people. Yeah, me too. That would be awesome if that is how it worked. I think some of this comes from being oversold on what Christian community is. 
We throw around phrases like radical community. And then you show up to radical community and it's a bad potluck and a boring Bible study and Steve is shilling stale oatmeal raisin cookies that you have to eat a bite of and then sit in your lap and then throw away in the bathroom later. (laughs) And you sit there thinking, what's radical about this? Or we've bought into Hollywood friendship that we see in movies and TV shows where good friends meet each other and bond instantly. The famous line from the movie Step Brothers comes to mind. Did we just become best friends? Real community is slow, awkward, requires a bit or a lot of effort. It takes commitment. It's not instantly life-changing. It's mostly not radical. In fact, it's mundane, regular, average, nice, pleasant, eventually comfortable, It becomes beautiful and safe and encouraging. And then finally, it becomes life-changing. We want community to be like eating at Nobu, where the first bite brings you tears of joy and instant life change in a moment. Real community is more like a slice of warm bread. It's poor unglamorous, unremarkable, not worth posting about on Instagram, and secretly delicious and nourishing. And here's the thing, maybe sometimes you meet someone and it clicks, and maybe sometimes you get to eat at Nobu, but most of us don't. Most of us maybe need to learn to love bread. Real community doesn't radically make you happy, but it deeply starts to shift anxious loneliness into content wholeness in unnoticeable and quiet ways. The great theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the threat of idealized theoretical community versus real community. And he says this, the sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest. May we kill the dream of perfect community that doesn't exist and embrace the messy, real community that's available. Number three, third reason why we resist community thinks deep down we are actually secretly scared to be known. This might be the biggest obstacle to overcome, if I'm honest, because deep at our core, we are broken, messy people with dirty interior lives, more weaknesses than we would dare to let people know. We are more scared, have more secrets and insecurities and more shame than we would like to let on. And community threatens that. Community demands to be let in to your real life. And this is where community is beautiful 
because it tears down the walls of pretense that stop us from being truly loved. We know this to be true. I am only loved as much as I am known. And as long as I am not fully known, I will never feel fully loved. The unknown person will always fear that if you ever do come to know all of me, then you will reject me. As long as I am not fully known, I can never fully receive love because I will always doubt the love shown to me because that love is ignorant to my deepest, darkest self. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Jesus on the cross willingly puts his brokenness on display so that broken people know that you can belong with him. We must show each other our authentic selves so that we can find belonging with each other. If your life is not shared, then you will exist but never belong. And you will witness the slow withering of your own soul. But when we share our lives, when we are known and loved and we find a place where we belong, in that place, we can be transformed and healed. Number four, finally, the last obstacle to community is being too busy or needing to keep your options open in case something good comes along. Can I be honest? Every single person I've ever talked to in LA finds that annoying about other people. No comment. This one I can't help you with. Because the only way to thrive and the only way to find community and the only way to slay isolation and loneliness is to make time for it. Commit to it. Persist. Don't flake. Don't quit. Don't get too busy. Protect the time. Be intentional. I'd implore you to ask yourselves these questions. When was the last time someone prayed for you in a living room? When that happened, if it happened, was it a one-off event or is that a regular occurrence for you? When was the last time someone sat on your living room floor and laughed? Do you have a regular, committed, unmissable rhythm of relationship in your life? Can your soul afford to continue not having regular, consistent community with Jesus-loving friends? This is the part of the sermon I'm nervous about because this is the part where I'm going to invite you into something deeper in community.
Some of you have been listening to this sermon, smile on your face the whole time because you have this. And all this sermon has done is hopefully given you passion and gratitude for what you have. Come on, amen, rock and roll. For some of us, we don't have this. So let me give you a few options. Do you already have friends, but there's no regular rhythm, no consistency, intentionality, and no depth? Here's what I invite you to do. Set it up with them. Take your informal, casual, fun friendships and take the risk, and it is a risk, of saying to those friends, can we hang out more consistently as a priority in our lives and when we get together, at minimum, can we check in with each other's souls and pray? Some of you don't have that. And you might need to consider joining a group or a course or a team at Vintage Church. Now then, this is the part I'm most nervous about. Can I make a confession? I run the groups at Vintage Church, okay? And I hate church groups. Like, I'm the guy who would never join one, ever. If I heard a sermon on community that ended with a push to join a church group, I would run for the hills. I would leave when the band gets up. I think God loves that about me because he put me in charge of flipping groups. And so now I'm 100% committed to creating groups that even people who hate groups want to be part of. When I was a teenager, you would not have caught me dead at a youth group. I love Jesus, but man, I hated that thing called church. And then I spent the last 14 years of my life being a youth pastor. I spent the last 14 years leading youth groups, pouring blood, sweat, and many, many tears into trying to create environments where youth who would not be seen dead in church could encounter Jesus, because that was me. And now I get to do it for groups. I have a group. I love my group. They meet on Monday nights. It's like 10, 12 of us. They're funny and they're sweet. They've babysat my kids. They drink all my whiskey. They, they help each other jump their cars when their battery is dead in the middle of a city. They help each other find apartments and roommates. They care for each other. We pray and we sit on my living room floor because there are not enough chairs and it is unremarkable. And it is beautiful. And maybe you need a group like this. Now then, I'm also aware I'm going to preach to over a thousand people today. <clears throat> we do not have that many groups. So here's the call. Some of you need to host groups. And here's where I'm nervous because I've worked really hard because ain't nobody want to host a group. It's like 1% of the church less than is like, yeah, I'd do that. But it shouldn't be. I've worked really hard to make hosting a group at Vintage easy. All you, have to be do, all you have to do is be willing to open your home. All you have to do is be the person who goes, of the people in our friend group, let's meet at my house. 
doesn't matter if your home is small. In fact, I think it might be better if your home is small. Because if I've only ever sat in a chair in your house, we aren't that close. If I have sat on your living room floor, you are probably someone that I deeply love. Your group doesn't have to be big. It could be four of you. It could be six. It could be eight. It could be 10. If you want, it can be 20. You don't have to multiply your group. You don't have to have it open to everybody on the planet. It can be just you and the homies, or it can be just you saying, I need homies. You don't have to be a theological scholar. You don't have to write Bible studies. The way I lead my group, and I have been to Bible school, and I am in Bible college, the way I lead my group is someone else has written the content, and when my guests show up, when my friends show up, I pull it up on my phone, and I read it for the first time. I try to make hosting a group easy. You're just the one in your friends that goes, let's meet at my house. You just have to be enthusiastic about a group of friends getting to know Jesus better together. So if you're interested in taking a step towards deeper community, I cannot recommend it with more enthusiasm. Come talk to us at the Connect Cafe. Go to the webpage, explore the idea, find out more, maybe sign up for a course, maybe join a group, maybe ask to host a group, maybe join a team. They're all great ways to step into community here at church. If you want to, and you certainly don't have to, I do not make a commission from how many people respond to this message. I gain absolutely nothing. I have no vested interest other than I care for your soul. Vintage Church has no benefit from having groups other than maybe the people who come to this church would find their souls thriving. I don't make a commission, I don't benefit, but I have made it my life goal to help human beings move from a place of isolation as part of a crowd to belonging as part of a family. And I hope that I can help bring that into your life too. Will you stand with me? I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. And as they do so, we're gonna pray. We're gonna wait on the Holy Spirit and ask him to move in our midst. So if you want, you can close your eyes, but if it feels safer to keep them open, do that. If you want, you can hold out your hands. This is an ancient tradition of holding your hands out as a way of showing God, I'm open. I'm just going to pray, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Nothing magical happens when I say those words. It's just an invitation for you to say the same in your heart. And so, God, we say, Holy Spirit, come. Let your presence fill not just this room, but our hearts as well. Holy Spirit, would you start to speak to the people in this room, to the ones who are barely hanging on? To those of you that have a bunch of friends, but man, when I said, when was the last time someone prayed for you in a living room, that cut to the bone. 
for those of you that feel like community is so scary, Holy Spirit, would you speak the individual words that complex individual people need to hear? Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? In a moment, we're going to worship, and the Holy Spirit is still going to move. We're going to have prayer team that are going to come to the front. And if you feel a strong nudge in your heart, I encourage you to come forward for prayer. They'll be here during worship. They'll be here after the service. If you are feeling desperately isolated, come get prayer. If you are hurt by community, be brave and come get prayer. If God has spoken to you deeply, come get prayer. For everybody else, look at us. Look at us. A beautiful, diverse, big old crowd of a community. And God moves in those spaces. So as we worship, let's celebrate the fact that here we are with nothing in common, except we have everything in common in Christ. So let's worship Him. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.